Well, in December of 2015, just one day after a mass shooting in San Bernardino, the front cover of the New York Daily News had this in bold print, God isn't fixing this. And that is really, I think, a representative of the intellectual mood of the times. But the Bible teaches us that God is fixing the mess that is in this world. King Jesus is working on a plan to make all things new. And tonight, we're going to look into God's Word to see a very significant event in the unfolding of that plan to fix all that's gone wrong in the world. The text we're going to look at is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We've actually printed that text on the second page of your bulletin, and uh, please turn to it. It is Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, Israel's Messiah. Starting in verse 18 of Matthew 1, Matthew says this, Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In these verses, Matthew shows us five unique characteristics of Jesus that qualify him to be Israel's long-prophesied, long-awaited Messiah and the Savior of the world that God promised to send. We've already looked at the first characteristic as a church family a couple of Sundays ago. Uh, it was His miraculous virgin conception. Uh, we looked at that uh, when we were studying these verses two Sundays ago, and I said that by a special act of creation, the Holy Spirit added humanity to the divine nature of the pre-existing Son of God. The second characteristic that qualifies Jesus to be the Savior of the world is His unique mission as sent by God. Look again at verse 21. The angel tells Joseph that Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This messenger tells Joseph that Mary will have a baby boy, and Joseph and Mary are not to name the child whatever they want to name it. Instead, he commands Joseph to name the child uh, Jesus, or in Hebrew, to name the child Joseph. Now, in, uh, sorry, Joseph, uh, Joshua, Joshua, uh, the name in our Bible is Jesus because that's the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua, but here's the point. In Hebrew, names had meanings, and the name Jesus is a compound uh, name in Hebrew because it's made up of two different words. It's a compound, we have compound words, it's a compound name. Uh, part of that name is Yahweh. Uh, the divine uh, name, the God's covenant name with Israel. That's the first part of the name. The second part of the name simply means saves or delivers. And so, to the ears of Joseph, who understood Hebrew, 
it would have sounded this way. The angel said to him, you shall call the baby Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. Those of you who are students of the Bible know that the Bible speaks of salvation and deliverance from a broad range of evils. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's many instances of people being delivered from physical evils. But notice that this baby was sent into the world to save people from something very specific, from their sins. Uh, it's true that at times God uses the subtle workings of His providence to save the people He loves from physical harm and danger, and you can see plenty of examples of that in Scripture. But this baby boy has been sent on a mission to save people from their sin. He's not here to save people from every kind of evil in the universe that threatens them from without. He's here to save people from the evil that wells up from within. He's here to save people from themselves. Jesus will be a spiritual rescuer. And uh, that's a very simple truth. You can see it for yourself in the English uh, translation of the Bible. Uh, but the Greek makes it even more clear. It adds a reflexive uh, pronoun that makes the sentence even more demonstrative. It's, it, it, you could also translate it like this. He himself will save his people from their sins. And in fact, the, the angel even uses a play on words that hints that this baby boy has the prerogative to forgive sins, which we, which we see Jesus exercising when he grows up. And uh, there's this juxtaposition between the meaning of his name and his mission. The angel says, name the boy Yahweh saves because he himself will save people from their sins. But Yahweh is the only one who can forgive sins. Yet this boy will grow up to save people from their sins and at times as an adult to declare people forgiven of sin. And so buried within his name is not only the reason of his mission, but I even believe a hint of his deity. And notice that he will possess his own unique group of people. He's going to save his people from their sins. Now, you could think when you see that, that his people would be the Jewish nation. Jesus is a Jewish boy. He's the Jewish Messiah, after all. You think it's the Jewish people. Uh, but that's not what the angel is speaking of, uh, because not all Jewish people will believe in him. Uh, what he's speaking of is the church, the people, uh, all Jews and Gentiles of all time, who turn to him for forgiveness of sin. And those who look to Jesus for salvation will find that He completely addresses their sin problem. In fact, Scripture speaks about the salvation Jesus brings from sin in a multifaceted kind of way. It gives at least four different ways He delivers us from our sins. First, He perfectly kept God's law against sin for His people. Romans 5.19 says it this way, for as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, and that's referring to Adam who sinned in the garden, even so through the obedience of the one, that is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I ought to have lived so that by faith His righteous life could be credited to our account. That's the first way He saves people from their sins. But secondly, His death fully paid the penalty for the sins we've committed. Uh, Isaiah, speaking prophetically of the Messiah, says this, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was cut off out of the land of the living. The Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief, if He would render Himself a guilt offering. Jesus saves His people by paying the just penalty that their sins deserved as a sacrifice on the cross. Third, in His death and resurrection, He ended the enslaving power of sin 
over his people. Romans 6 says it this way, our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Christians have been set free from the enslaving, ensnaring, habit-forming, addictive power of sin. Uh, We can still commit sin, we can still become entangled in sin, but we don't have to be. Christ has broke the power, the addictive power of sin in our lives. And then the fourth way that He saves His people from their sin is by eliminating their future ability to sin. The Apostle John says it this way in his first letter to the churches, when Jesus returns again, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. In eternity future, those whom this baby boy saves will be sinless, and that's how radically He'll transform His people. He will not only pardon them from their sin by paying the penalty for them, His righteous life will be credited to them by faith. He'll set them free from the power of sin in this life, and in the life to come, He will completely sanctify them such that they will go on in eternity future to not sin anymore. Now, Matthew also informs us not only of the unique conception, the miraculous conception of this baby and the unique mission God sent him into the world to perform. But thirdly, he also informs us of his unique credentials. Verse 22, Matthew says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The circumstances of our Lord's virgin conception and then His virgin birth took place to fulfill a prophecy that Isaiah gave over 700 years earlier. Being the only person ever conceived of a virgin and uh, being the only person ever born of a virgin gives Jesus unique messianic credentials because He fulfills the prophecies of Isaiah in a way that no one else can compete with. But it's not just His credentials as the only virgin-conceived person that will make Him unique. Uh, it's also the way that he, he, he works. He has this way with His people whereby He will get a reputation with them that is unique as well. The reputation He'll have among His people is this. They will call Him Emmanuel. Now, like Jesus, the Hebrew name Emmanuel has a meaning, and it's also a compound name. It's, it's formed by two Hebrew words. Uh, the first word means God among us or God with us. The second Uh, word, El, is just the generic Hebrew name for God. So, amongst His own people, those who follow Him, they will have the settled persuasion that this Jesus, who's become a Savior from their sins, that He is literally, actually, God among us, God come among us, God with us. Uh, It's an understatement to say that anyone who has that reputation among His people is unique, and uh, that's part of the unique quality of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, Matthew shows us one other unique credential of Christ to be the Savior of the world and Israel's Messiah, and that is His his pedigree. Uh, He reports in verse 24, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. So, in other words, Joseph was betrothed to Mary, and undoubtedly, they, they probably had a date on the calendar, uh, but they moved that date up quickly. Uh, after this dream, after listening to what the angel commanded, uh, Joseph went ahead and had the chuppah. He, he, he married the girl probably ahead of schedule. Now, when Joseph obeyed this command, 
It meant that he was willing to take some personal shame on himself, and here's the reason why. Women usually start showing uh, three or four months into their first pregnancy, and if you compare Matthew's account with Luke's gospel account of the birth of Jesus, you find that at this point, Mary was three months pregnant. So if she hasn't started showing yet, she's going to start showing um, probably only weeks after they have their wedding, and everyone in town is going to see that she's showing, and because Joseph married her, they're going to come to the conclusion that he didn't keep her pure until they were married. Uh, But in spite of that potential public shame, Joseph obeys the command, he obeys the angel, he takes Mary to be his wife. And once they were wed, uh, there is a sense in which, biblically speaking, I guess, Joseph could have been physically intimate with Mary, but notice what he does. He abstains uh, until after the baby is born. Uh, Matthew says Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Uh, This again was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 7. The virgin conception described back in verse 18, uh, that was part of the miracle, but the prophecy of Isaiah 7 also includes a virgin giving birth to a son. And so, Joseph kept Mary a virgin, and that fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 7. Now, in first century Jewish culture, the father named the child, and he, of course, he consulted his wife, he consulted the mom, but the mother and father, they decided, and, and the public looked to the father to name the child. And uh, normally, fathers uh, would name children after other adult men in the family or in the family tree, but here Joseph defies expectations. He obeys the angel, and he names the boy Jesus. And by naming the boy Jesus, Joseph actually did something very important here. By naming him, Joseph is officially claiming him. He's officially adopting him as his own. And that status as adopted son of Joseph legitimates the right that Jesus has to sit on the throne of David. He fulfills it, it fulfills the prophecy of 2 Samuel 7 that the Messiah will be a son of David who is also a king in Israel. Taking the whole passage together then and noting all Uh, of these unique characteristics of Jesus, what we see is this. The eternally pre-existent Son of God added humanity to His divine nature by being conceived of a virgin and born by a virgin, and that begins to answer the question, how is God fixing what's wrong in the world? To understand the rest of the answer, you have to read the rest of the New Testament, right? You have to read uh, the answer for yourself in the pages of Holy Scripture. And I'll confess to you that if you read that story, um, God at times seems terrifyingly patient with evil. He doesn't always intervene as quickly as we would like or in the way that we would like. He seems to give people who are wicked plenty of time to repent. Um, And and it can be difficult for us to see. It can be frustrating, uh, angering. Uh, If it had been me and I was God, uh, after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, I would have made sure that Adam uh, reaped a few harvests of thorns and thistles. I would have made sure that uh, Eve had a particularly painful childbirth just so that they can learn their lesson. And then I would have sent a Savior in the world and wrapped up history, and there would have been three human beings and a few angels and the Trinity in heaven for eternity. 
But that seems a little small to you. See, and that's the point. That's one of the reasons God is so patient with evil, because he's working on a plan that's much bigger than the way we think, and he also has an attention span that's a little bit longer than our attention span. He wor- it, he, it was thousands of years before he sent the seed of Eve to come and be the Savior of the world, and now those of us who believe in him and are waiting for his return, we've waited almost 2,000 years for him to come again, and that's because God works on a different timetable, but that doesn't mean that God isn't working. At Christmas, we celebrate the fact that God has started to fix it by sending a child named Yahweh Saves, who came and lived among us, uh, lived the righteous life we should have lived, voluntarily went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and now He's in heaven interceding for His people and working out a plan that will eventually make all things new. And when Jesus completes His plan to make all things new, Revelation promises us that He'll wipe away every tear from our eyes and that there will no longer be any death or mourning or crying or pain. All things will be made new. There won't be any uh, aging, sickness, or death. And not only that, but He will so vanquish evil and death that in eternity future, when we look back on what happened in this life, we will see that there was actually a wisdom in him allowing evil to exist temporarily for a time before he defeated it eternally. And at Christmas, we celebrate the fact that God sending his son into the world is a part of that larger story of him making all things new. And so, uh, in closing, I want to end tonight having looked at the birth of Jesus, Israel's Messiah, and the Savior of Gentiles like us I want to end with an invitation, and I also want to propose a solution to a particularly vexing problem many of us face at at this season of the year. The invitation is this. We all know through observation and experience that one day we're going to die. So it doesn't do any, 10 out of 10 people die. It doesn't do any good for us to keep running from it. At some point, we have to face up to the bitter process of aging and dying. And the Bible tells us that it's appointed unto all mankind once to die, and after that, the judgment. And at the judgment, we will be judged based on the rubric of God's moral law. And here's the thing about the judgment. It's not just that, it's not just that God gave us a, a, a study guide for the exam. He showed us the exam ahead of time with every single question on it. You can look it up for yourself in the Bible. You could start with the Ten Commandments would be a great simple place to start. And all you have to do is just look at his moral law and then evaluate your own life. And I think if you'll do that objectively, you'll see that you've broken his law again and again and again and again, and you need a savior. You need someone to pay the penalty for the guilt you've incurred. You've broken God's law over and over, and you need Jesus. Uh, And the baby Jesus became a savior for us from our sins. After he grew up and became a man, he willingly died as a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. Uh, He died so that God could promise us this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so my invitation is for those of you who've never chosen to believe in and follow and confess Jesus, I want to invite you to do so tonight. Come to Jesus and he will save you from your sins. The vexing problem I'd like to address is for those of you who've already chosen to follow Jesus. Uh, we, we, we face a particular problem at this time of year as followers of Jesus, and, and here's what it is. Christmas Day, as we celebrate it, is an odd mix of Christian truth 
too much sugar, family expectations, uh, and nostalgia mixed up with a heaping helping of too much emotion. And uh, here's what it does. It, it becomes a very challenging time, and many of you can struggle with the Christmas blues, or, or even if you really enjoy Christmas, and you don't, you don't struggle with Christmas, Christmas blues leading up to it, and you have a great Christmas day, often there's the, a letdown after Christmas Day, if you're one of the ones who has a great Christmas Day. And, and here's the reason that I think all of that actually makes logical sense in our experience. Um, Christmas is a time where just by nature we become reflective. And the problem is, uh, you didn't expect for things to work out this way in your life. You didn't expect for Christmas to roll around at this stage in your life and be estranged from that family member that normally you, you would have spent Christmas with like the rest of America seems to be able to. Or you didn't expect to reach this stage of life and be single or be divorced or be bereaved of a spouse or a, a child that you wanted to spend Christmas with. And so you're, you're struggling with that. You grieve over that. And then along comes Christmas to just punctuate what you don't have in your life but wanted. And I think it makes perfectly logical sense that at Christmas, uh, we become naturally aware of the disappointments, particularly the relational disappointments in our lives. But the larger context of us doing so at Christmas is that we're sitting in the middle of unfathomable mercies and graces that we've received through God's Son. And so I want to propose to you that one way to fight the Christmas blues or the Christmas letdown is to count the blessings you do have. I want to encourage you to fight against the Christmas blues with thanks, thankfulness, with thanksgiving, to stop and think about, not about the things you don't have, but to think about the things you do have. You have Christ. You've been forgiven. You've been set free from the slavery to, your slavery to sin. You don't have to face aging and death without hope because you have Christ. Psalm 23 teaches that it's guaranteed for God's people, that God's goodness and His loving kindness will pursue us all the days of our lives, and then we'll go to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I know that many of you who are members of our church, you already do a lot to include Christ in your private Christmas celebrations, even coming out here at night on Christmas Eve to be part of a candlelight Christmas Eve service. But now I want to commend to you just one more thing. I want to commend to you the giving of thanks. I want to commend to you starting off Christmas morning, but before you're down with family or whoever you're meeting with, I want to commend to you beginning Christmas morning with prayers of thanksgiving where you go out of your way to focus on listing, enumerating, naming all the good things in your life, all the blessings and mercies you do enjoy instead of just being sensitive because of the time of year it is to the blessings you wish you had, but don't. Uh, say a prayer of thanksgiving on Christmas morning for all that you do have and for all the kindness God has already shown you through Jesus. That's my exhortation for those of you who are already followers of King Jesus. Let's pray.